I love Church History Weekend because it's an opportunity to dress up in some fun costumes. I've been a monk. I've, uh, I'm not sure what else I've done, but here we are talking about William Wilberforce. And I, uh, one of the reasons that we do these weekends is so that um, we, we're, we're promoting something that is so wonderfully helpful in the Christian life, and that is learning uh, from the lives of great men and women who've gone before us. And this, I want to promote the reading of biography. I want to promote what Scripture does for us, even if you think about the Old Testament. In fact, much of the Bible is itself biography. Why does the Holy Spirit go to the trouble to tell us about David and Abraham and Moses and Esther and Ruth and all the rest? It's because we can identify with their lives and we see our lives and their lives and we can be inspired, can't we, to, uh, to greatness for the Lord. And uh, that certainly is the case with William Wilberforce. You know, uh, Hebrews 11 is the famous chapter of faith where there is a recounting of all that uh, these great saints did and down through history. And, and uh, you get to Hebrews thirteen seven, and it says this, Remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. And that's what we do one weekend a year. Uh, when we uh, spend some time and we talk about church history and God's providential working down through history, uh, which we are a part of, of course, but we are, we are receiving from uh, the saints of old uh, the gospel, the Bible, and this great heritage of faith. So this weekend we're focusing on the greatest Christian that you probably have never heard of. The greatest Christian that you've probably never heard of. Perhaps the most influential Christian. That maybe you've heard his name, but you probably don't know that much about him. In fact, one, uh, one writer of his life said this, Taken all together, it's difficult to escape the verdict that William Wilberforce was simply the greatest social reformer in the history of the world. Now that is a big statement, isn't it? And I hope by the time I'm done telling you about his life, you'll see why that probably is true. William Wilberforce. He was a little man. He was a little man. Five feet tall was all the taller that he was. If he was speaking at Bethel, he wouldn't have been able to look over the top of this. He would have been about this tall. And he was a waif of a man, slender build. Uh, at one point in his life, as an adult, he was sick, but he weighed uh, under 80 pounds. So very small little man, and yet he was the little man with a huge heart for God and the huge heart for people. And his life and his testimony and what God did through him changed the world. In fact, the world that we live in today is the way that it is in many respects because of William Wilberforce. So I want to tell you his story. And as we do this, I don't want anybody here to think that in some way that we are 
uh, not seeing him through the grid of Scripture. The Bible says that we are all sinners, that we all fall short of the glory of God. And that certainly was true for William Wilberforce. If we would have had the opportunity to know him personally and get an up-close look at him, we would have seen sin in his life, and we would have seen pride, and we would have seen contradictions and all the rest. He was a sinner in need of grace. We're not, we're not worshiping him in any way. But we do want to imitate the outcome of his life, as Hebrews 13, 7 says. So let me tell you the story of William Wilberforce. We begin in his childhood. He was born August 24th, 1759. Now you haven't probably been in history for a while, so let me put this in a context for you. 1759 would have been uh, 17 years before the American Revolution in 1776. Yes, that's true. Good to see that we all are graduates of a local school, apparently. Uh, Wilberforce was born into a family, a business family, a family of considerable wealth. His parents were, his dad was a merchant. And so he was born into privilege, He was born into high society. Like many in England at the time, his parents were as religious as they needed to be to keep up appearances. So this meant that they would occasionally go to church. But the last thing that they wanted to do was to have to take their faith seriously and certainly didn't want their faith in any way to be impacting the way that they lived their life or the decisions that they made. This was England, by the way, at the time. Sometimes we look back on, you know, in England and we think about Puritans and we think about, you know, many of the great saints that uh, came out of England uh, and we could think that somehow it was some sort of a utopic sort of uh, situation. Nothing could be further from the, from the truth. It was a decadent society that Wilberforce uh, was born into. And spiritually, they called themselves a Christian nation. They had the Anglican church, but in practice... There were very few people that took anything seriously about their faith at all. In fact, it was not until uh, a movement led primarily by George Whitfield and John Wesley, hopefully know their names, where there was a revival that came to England. It was largely in the lower class, and uh, these were people that now had a very enthusiastic, pietific faith. They were taking their faith seriously and they were involved in things and they were praying and they were getting together and they were so serious about the way that they went about doing their faith that they were mocked and they were called Methodists. Oh, the Methodists. They're so methodical in the way that they go about their faith. They're so serious about their faith. And this was very much looked down upon in the upper class of society. Uh, to be, a, to be a, an enthusiastic evangelical Christian, uh, it, it, did not, it did not go over well at all. When William was nine years old, his father died. And as a result of that, he was sent to live with his aunt and his uncle, who were even wealthier than his own parents. And so he went and he lived with them in their estate. Well, what nobody knew about this aunt and uncle, who had no children of their own, by the way, they loved William very much, was that they were themselves Methodists. 
And as William was in their home for two years, they taught him and modeled for him Christian faith that was real and was authentic. And uh, they didn't realize, his, his mother didn't realize, that George Whitfield and this aunt and uncle were very close personal friends. Whitfield would come and would live in the estate for weeks on, on end. And this couple would finance uh, evangelical work with their vast wealth all over the countryside. And so here's William now, uh, hanging out with his aunt and uncle, seeing their faith, meeting very interesting people, including the famous John Newton, who was friends with his aunt and uncle, who we just sang his song, Amazing Grace. John Newton was himself a slave trader who had been wonderfully converted. And it's for that reason that he penned the words, uh, the you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you read the biography of John Newton, his life was a wretch. And all of the atrocities that were done to slaves during all of that slave trade, he himself was involved in. He never got over the grace of God to him, a sinner. Well, Wilberforce met Newton as a boy between ages 9 and 11. What happened was that somehow his mother found out that this aunt and uncle were actually Methodists. And she raced to their home and she got Wilbur, uh, or William out of there as fast as he, she could because she in no way wanted their son to become a Methodist. In fact, uh, uh, William's grandfather said, if he becomes a Methodist, he will not see one dime from me. That's what, the way they felt about him. All that, you know, enthusiastic following of Jesus stuff. Come on. We don't want any of that in our family. So, for two years, he lived with his aunt and uncle, and those two years planted the seed of the gospel in his heart. We could pause right now and ask the question, if we had a nine-year-old boy that came and lived in our home for two years, what would he leave with? What would he leave with? What would he hear? What would he see in living in our home for two years? That's an interesting question. Well, what happened was that after he left there and moved into his teenage years, uh, much like the parable of the sower and the seed where the seed fell on the, on the ground and, and the birds came and took it away, uh, William turned into a regular upper-class partying, frat partying, crazy, wild man, rich guy. And the faith of his aunt and uncle was largely forgotten and he moved into his teenage years, and he had tons of money and tons of influence and all of that, and he was living life uh, to the fullest. Eventually, he went to university, and he went to Cambridge. Where else would a fine, upstanding, wealthy son go? Maybe, um, maybe Oxford, but he went, to, he went to Cambridge, which was an important part of his story. And what happened there was that it was during these years that incredible natural gifts that God had given to him flourished. And uh, by all accounts, he was an incredible communicator. He was a wonderful conversationalist. People loved to talk with him, and he loved to talk with people. He was extremely smart. He was uh, clever-witted. And it was the kind of guy that people just flocked to him. And while he was at Cambridge, it was said about his dorm room and the places that he was at, that people were, they were just there all the time. 
you know, late into the night, talking with him and carrying on, he was extremely popular. And what's going to happen here is just like God did with the Apostle Paul and those incredible gifts that the Apostle Paul had that God transformed and used in his life. God is going to take the natural gifts of William Wilberforce and he is going to change the world. What natural gifts might you have, by the way, my dear friend, that if submitted to the purposes of God could be used in dramatic ways for his glory? Listen to the story of Wilberforce and be inspired. The other thing that happened to Wilberforce while he was at Cambridge is that he made friends with a very interesting fellow. His name was William Pitt. Now, William Pitt was the son of the Prime Minister of England. Now, this is back in the day when the superpower was Great Britain, much like maybe the U.S. is today. Whatever whatever, uh, Britain decided and did set the tone for the entire world. And to be the prime minister of Great Britain, along with the king at the time, was basically to rule the world. And this William Pitt at Cambridge is the son of the prime minister of England. And he was himself incredibly smart, incredibly talented. He, he and Wilberforce were, they were uh, equals in terms of their ability to debate and to argue and to be clever-witted and to be fun and all the rest. And so he and Wilberforce, they hit it off. They became friends. And because uh, William Pitt was the son of the prime minister, Pitt would oftentimes go down to London. And he invited Wilberforce to go with him, who was not from London, He was from northern England. And uh, Wilberforce, for the first time, got a look firsthand at politics in Great Britain. And they would go to the parliament, and they would watch the debates going on in the parliament. Now, they're just students at Cambridge, okay? And they're watching these debates. And as Wilberforce watched the debates, he thought to himself, now this looks like something I might enjoy, And so kind of on a lark, at the age of 20, this is a sophomore basically in college today, he decides to let his name stand for a seat in Parliament. This is the Congress of Great Britain. And because of some money and a really great speech that he gave, two weeks past the minimum age of their constitution, William Wilberforce, at the age of 20, became a member of Parliament. A couple months later, William Pitt did the same. So here you have, this is like two, two guys in the dorm at Purdue going, let's become congressmen. <laughs> they're so young. They're like babies. No, they're college students, but that's just a small step past that. It seems to me now. Uh, and yet here now they are actually congressmen, parliamentarians in the most powerful country in the entire world. And uh, in fact, actually, just four years later, Wilberforce would win the seat of the most coveted and powerful position in the entire parliament. This would be like at age 24 becoming uh, the senior senator from New York in the U.S. Senate. That was William Wilberforce. At the age of 24, He is in the most powerful seat in the entire parliament. He is rich. He is funny. He is a member at all these clubs. 
He was a great singer. High society types. Everybody wanted to be around William Wilberforce. I mean, it's like his, the trajectory of his life was just like this, right? And so you're saying to yourself, well, why are we talking about this guy? And you've already spent so much time. It's because of what happens next. What happens next is that shortly after becoming the most powerful seated uh, uh, lord in, in, in uh, the parliament, he decides to go on a vacation in Europe. Now that sounds nice, doesn't it? I mean, if you're William Wilberforce, why not go tour the Alps? Doesn't that sound great? And that's exactly what he decides to do. And so he needs somebody to go with him. He invited a doctor friend and he couldn't go. So at the last minute, he invites a guy named Isaac Milner to go on this trip with him. And uh, by the way, when you, in those days, you didn't take the channel train uh, and, and you didn't fly around Europe. You went by carriage. And so there you go in, in the Alps. Imagine that, in that back in that day, these little roads through the Alps, horse and a carriage. And, and so uh, Wilberforce loved conversation and he wasn't about to do the whole thing by himself. And so he invites Isaac Milner. Now, Isaac Milner was... Uh, he, he had the professorial chair at uh, Cambridge that would later be filled by Stephen Hawking. You might be familiar with Stephen Hawking. It is easy to say that whoever is holding that chair is arguably the smartest man in the world. Okay? And Isaac Milner was brilliant. He also was terribly funny and he loved to tell jokes. And so Wilberforce thought, what a fascinating guy to sit in a carriage and to drive through the Alps with. And he invites Milner to go with him. Well, somewhere along the trip, it comes out that not only is Milner this professor and and, uh, this brilliant guy, but he's also a closet Methodist. And they've begun the trip. They can't turn around. And so now Wilberforce is in a carriage with a brilliant evangelical Christian, and they have weeks of traveling in the carriage together. So guess what they talked about? They talked about Christianity. Again, we could stop and, th- and ask ourselves, if, if, if uh, we were to spend a couple weeks in the carriage with somebody, what would be the outcome of that? What influence would we have on them as a result of spending that much time? Well, Milner began to talk with Wilberforce about Christianity. And remember, Wilberforce is a brilliant guy. And they begin to debate this and that and this and that. And by the end of the trip, Wilberforce can only come to the conclusion that the claims of Christianity are true. Which is incredibly perplexing to him. Because he realizes that if Jesus was raised from the dead, and if the claims of Christianity are true, the implications for his life, the famous Wilberforce, would forever change him. And he did not know what to do. He lands back in England, still the great, you know, the great uh, powerful man. But in his heart, he knows that something had happened. There had been what he called the great change. So what do you do if you're a famous politician? Famous for your partying? Member at all the clubs? And now you're a Christian. He did not know what to do. So you know what he did? He takes a page from Nicodemus in John 3 who went to Jesus secretly at night to ask him some questions. He reaches out to the old pastor 
from his childhood, John Newton. He reaches out to John Newton and says, can we get together? But I have to come in secret because I'm famous everywhere. And Newton agrees to see him. And secretly, Wilberforce shows up and asks him, tells him what has happened in his life and asks him, can I be a Christian and a politician? Should I quit? Should I go into the ministry? What should I do? I don't know what to do. Now, praise God, John Newton looked at life like a Christian. He had a biblical worldview. And the biblical worldview is that there is not a vocation in the world, that's a holy one, that cannot be done to the glory of God. And Newton said to him, you stay in there as a politician. And you use your influence and you use your position for the glory of God. And Wilberforce took the words of Newton and thought to himself, that is exactly what I am going to do. Two years later, two years after the great change, which by the way, isn't that a great uh, description of salvation? The great change. I once was this, but now I'm this. Wilberforce had a great change. Two years after the great change, he sat down and he wrote a personal vision statement for his life. Might be the most famous thing that he ever wrote. And here it is. He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, we're going to spend time on the abolition of the slave trade, but let me talk about the second part of that, the reformation of manners. By that, he's not meaning uh, that, you, that you wipe your mouth after you uh, eat a spaghetti. Uh, he is talking about manners there was the custom and the culture of the day. Again, Britain, Britain was a decadent society. To give you an idea, 25% of all the women in the city of London were prostitutes. One out of four. That kind of uh, debauchery and the, just the vulgar, profane lifestyles that flow out of a culture that really had only a facade of Christianity and big churches around, but nobody really believed in that stuff, created a, the descriptions that I read, it just was like slums, and of course, who suffers the most? The children suffer the most. And London was just the streets and the whole feel of the whole thing, absolutely terrible and corrupt. Wilberforce set about to change that. And he began ministry after ministry after ministry. In fact, at one point in his life, he was personally involved in 69 different ministries of compassion and transformation in his country. He was absolutely committed to alleviating misery and pain and sorrow and all the rest in his country. A biography uh, says this about him. His new perspective made him about as zealous to improve the social conditions of the world around him as anyone who has ever lived. Now, just that would be great, wouldn't it? But what he's really famous for is the first part. He writes at the age of 26. Now, I'd like to stop right now, and I'd love to look at every 26-year-old here or mid-20s person saying, what are you doing with your life? What are you spending your time on? 
And you can think of all kinds of selfish endeavors and things that I'm going to spend my time doing. I'm going to play these games. I'm going to do this, that, or the other. At 26, Wilberforce set about to transforming the greatest evil in the world and one of the most horrible evils in the history of mankind. In fact, this is hard for us, I think, to understand the magnitude of what he was considering. The African slave trade was perhaps the most important economic engine in the entire empire. It, uh, it's, it's how they, they made money. It's how they, they, uh, they would take them to the West Indies and they would have plantations there where they would raise crops and they would work these slaves. And it was absolutely a critical feature of their entire lifestyle and their entire economic system. It would almost be like some senator tomorrow getting up and saying, I think, that, I think the United States should shut down all agriculture. Or I think the United States should shut down the internet. No more internet. We're just going to get rid of the internet. Think of something that's just so foundational, you can't even imagine it not being a part of it. That was slavery and the slave trade in that day. Thankfully, Wilberforce was not looking at the issue as a, as a Brit. He was not looking at it as a politician. He was doing what Christians do. They look at the world like a Christian. They look at the world through the lens of God's Word and what God's Word has to say. And for Wilberforce to see those Africans being kidnapped and traded like a commodity... This was not wheat, right? These were human beings. These were people made in the image of God. And now Wilberforce, after this great change, seeing his world as a Christian, realizes that these are people that are valued by God. And what Britain was doing, and many other nations as well, was an abomination to the very God whose image they bore. To take a a teenager or a child or a woman or a man, to kidnap them, to place them in a deplorable ship to transport them, where most of them died in transit, was about the most anti-Christian, anti-loving your neighbor thing that Wilberforce could think of. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. Christians love the image of God no matter where it is. It doesn't matter the color of the skin. It doesn't matter the social status. It doesn't matter if that image is inside the womb or outside the womb. We love the image of God no matter where it is found. And Wilberforce, we look at abortion right now and we see, why is that a problem? Because those children are in the image of God. They are valuable. And Wilberforce, with that same passion for African image bearers and what the British were doing to them became a crusader against the African slave trade and slavery as a whole. I mentioned the ships and I've, I've read about this. I don't have time to get into it. And if I was to tell you what they did, you would be, I mean, really we would want to vomit what they did to these Africans and the way that they transported them, locking them into conditions where they Every body function was just done on everybody else. It was, and they, it, the smell, it was absolutely horrible. And Wilberforce viewed slavery. If there was a, 
if there was an epicenter to the cancer, the moral cancer of the entire country, in his mind, slavery was it. And he set about, at the age of 26, to abolish slavery. Now, I don't have time to get into all the details of how he did it, but for 20 years, he met and preached and would every year put a bill forward for the, uh, the abolition of slavery. And year after year after year after year, it was voted down. It was laughed at. It was mocked at. And yet he continued to try and prick the conscience of the social elite towards what they knew to be the right thing to do. There was a recent movie about his life called Amazing Grace. I would commend it to all of you to watch. And we have two clips that we're going to use from that movie. The first one here reenacts some of his passion and some of the way that he confronted his society with the ills of slavery. So roll the tape. What's he doing up there? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a slave ship to Madagascar. It has just returned from the Indies where it delivered 200 men, women, and children to Jamaica. When it left Africa, there were 600 on board. The rest died of disease or despair. That smell is the smell of death. Slow, painful death. Breathe it in. Breathe it deeply. Take those handkerchiefs away from your noses. There now. Remember that smell. Remember the Madagascar. Remember that God made men equal. Just one example. There are many. For 20 years, he was doing things like that, trying to stir the conscience of the nation to do the right thing. At first, he was a solo voice. There were other abolitionists, of course, but there wasn't anybody else in a position of stature like Wilberforce. And he partnered with them, but he became the voice and he became the face of the movement. And here's what happened, is that very slowly, things began to change. Very slowly, the influence of Wilberforce moved beyond his legislation into the culture. Very slowly, the people that had money and had wealth began to realize that they had a responsibility to those that did not and those that were suffering for whatever reason. He became a model for them. As an example of this, he married when he was 37. And went on to have six children. And this is a day, you got to realize, these people that he hung around with, they had estates, they had, you know, castles and all the rest. And in that society, uh, parents didn't spend any time with the children. There were maids and assistants and all the rest that would, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't spend time with a, with a child. Wilberforce had six children. He doted on them. He loved them. He was around town with them. He set a moral example that began to stir and to change in the culture. 
In fact, in many ways, you can look at the entire philanthropic world right now. And you know, now millions, billions of dollars are given away uh, for, through foundations. And think of all the, the hospitals and all of the ministries and all the things that are, that are supported. You, know, you think of the Shriners, you think of missionaries, you think of you know, the whole philanthropic world. Even like a Bill Gates, for example, who uh, set aside whatever, $20, $30 billion in a foundation. That, that was not even part of anybody's thinking of, of the day. The rich didn't think they had any responsibility. They got what they got. They deserve it. I got my thing. And then came Wilberforce. In many ways, the entire philanthropic world that we know today is attributable to the life and the example of William Wilberforce, who himself was giving away vast sums of his estate to these ministries and to meet needs. So for 20 years, he labored year after year, putting forth legislation, wanting to see slavery abolished. When he was 48 years old in 1807, a vote was finally taken in both houses of parliament, abolishing the slave trade in all British colonies. This was the major breakthrough that they were all looking for, and this video captures the moment. Order! Order! On the Home and Foreign Slave Trade Act, the unamended bill calling for the abolition of the slave trade throughout the entire British Empire... Nose to the left, 16. Eyes to the right, 283. I declare the bill of abolition of the slave trade to be passed. When people speak of great men, they think of men like Napoleon, men of violence. Rarely do they think of peaceful men. But contrast the reception they will receive when they return home from their battles. Napoleon will arrive in pomp and in power, a man who has achieved the very summit of earthly ambition. And yet his dreams will be haunted by the oppressions of war. William Wilberforce, however, will return to his family, lay his head on his pillow, and remember, the slave trade is no more.
Isn't history wonderful? I love it so much. Great moment in the history of mankind. That was the abolition of the slave trade. And the hope was that by abolishing the slave trade, slavery would eventually sort of die out. Well, that did not happen. And for 26 more years, remember there's already been 20, for 26 more years they would continue to battle trying to have all slavery abolished in all British colonies around the world. And at last, in 1833, three days before he died, get this, three days before he died and the day before he lost consciousness, the British Parliament voted to abolish not just the trade of slaves, but all slavery in all British colonies. And with that, slavery was done in all of Britain. Now you might think, well, How big a a deal is that? Realize 30 years later, our country would go through a little struggle about slavery. Have you heard of it? And the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of American men that were killed in that struggle and all of the atrocities of the Civil War, to realize there was no Civil War in Britain because of the deft and winsome touch of William Wilberforce, who won the battle with nary a shot. This is the man that we are talking about. What a life. In fact, Abraham Lincoln would draw inspiration from a little five-foot guy named William Wilberforce, who had taken on the British Empire because he loved God and he loved his neighbor as himself. In fact, in some ways, in fact, many ways, I think it's safe to say, if there had not been a Wilberforce, there would not have been a Lincoln. And what country are we living in today if there was no Lincoln? The world is an entirely different place because of William Wilberforce. He didn't want this. He wanted to be buried in a in a family grave, as I recall. But after he died, the country of Britain insisted, and he was buried at Westminster Abbey, yards away from the grave of his old friend, William Pitt the Younger, who at age 24 became the youngest uh, prime minister, at the time at least, in British history. These two friends from Cambridge, to this day, are just yards apart in a place of honor in the entire country of Great Britain. And I believe he should go down in our hearts and in our history as one of the great heroes of the faith who didn't just say nice things, but made a difference. The greatest social reformer, as one commentator said, in the history of the world. All right, Bethel, now listen. There's the story, and there's so much more to it. I really recommend Eric Metaxas's biography called Amazing Grace. It's one of the best biographies I've ever read. You can pick that up on Amazon or somewhere else. Let's pull this together with some lessons. What can we take away from the life and the example of William Wilberforce? Here's the first thing. Is that wherever true Christianity goes, it changes the world like salt to food and light to darkness. Now, I hope you recognize the latter part of that statement. Who am I quoting there? 
another famous Christian hero, Jesus, hello, are you with me? I said, what happened in 1776? I have no idea. Where did you people go to school? Uh, I thought I lost my train of thought on that. I was so uh, discouraged. Um, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that, didn't he? That we're called to be salt and light, like salt to food, which changes food, and light to darkness, which light always changes darkness. We are called to be a city on a hill. And wherever genuine, authentic Christianity goes, it changes that world. That's the power, and that is the influence of authentic Christianity. Now, I'm not just talking about Christianity. Because England was a, was a Christian country. They had libraries filled with doctrine. This is the land of the Puritans and so many other famous people there in England. They had all kinds of knowledge, but they did not have a heart. Wilberforce and Whitfield and Wesley all had the heart of Christianity. And they changed the world. Now, it'd be easy for me just to say, well, let's talk about Mission Them 2.0, and I'd love to do that, but I don't have time, other than to say this. What kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church do you want to be a part of? A British, in the 1800s, kind of Christianity, where we have our knowledge and we got our Christianity, but don't expect it to change my life or any decisions that I make or the lifestyle that I live. I've got Christianity, but I'm going off in this direction. Or do we want to be the kind of church, a Wilberforce kind of church, a Wilberforce of nature kind of church that brings about change? And what is Mission Them 2.0 other than us saying we want to be that kind of church? And can I ask you, my dear friend, what kind of part of that kind of church do you want to be? Chair sitting, cheering on while other people do the work and the labor and the heavy lifting, or are you going to be a part of it? How my heart breaks at the opportunity we have with our lives to make a difference. But that does not come because we know things. It comes when our hearts are on fire for God. And it causes us to love our neighbor as ourselves. What kind of church are we going to be? What kind of life are you living in your London? Are you being like salt and light in your sphere of influence? Because wherever authentic Christianity goes, things change. I can't think of a a more difficult task than landing in Britain in the late 1700s with the task of abolishing slavery. And yet it was Wilberforce's faith and that he was a joyous guy, a winsome guy, and the British Empire crumbled before him that's the power of truth and that is the power of god second thing i want to say about this and about his life is what we see that this change that we're talking about gospel influence gospel transformation and even sanctification this all happens incrementally it happens often 
slowly. Imagine if in year 11 you were to, uh, uh, of, of his battle here, you would have, you would have uh, interviewed him or wrote, written an article about him, and you could have said, Wilberforce the failure. He, he's not going to amount to anything. Why, 11 years he's been laboring and not one slave is not traded because of it. He's a failure. Now that would have been, that's a wrong call, isn't it? Change happens often slowly. And we can get discouraged in the early times of the change and think we're on the wrong direction or this is never going to work. And we see in Wilberforce a courage and a perseverance where he stuck to it. And the fruit of that over time was tremendous transformation. And I think about our church. You know, is it discouraging for us to think that this weekend half a million people that live in northwest Indiana aren't going to church anywhere? And don't have any visible expression of saving faith. And we know as First John says, he that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. Is it discouraging to us that our church has existed for some 75 years and there's still half a million people that don't give a rip for Jesus? We could look at that and say, well, what's the point? I mean, we're, we're never going to reach half a million people. We're never going to see this kind of transformation. But it always almost always, happens slowly. And when we see this family right here, Jesus take over this marriage. And Jesus take over this home. And Jesus take over this ministry. And slowly, we see the mustard seed of the gospel build and grow into a mighty tree. And we are in process here. Who knows what five years from now, we're going to look back at 2013 and 2014 and say, you know what? Those were pivotal years in the process of what God was doing. I can look back at moments in my years that I've been here where you could have looked at that moment and said, that was a total failure or this church isn't going to amount to nothing. And yet God has continued to slowly grow the church. And ministry is like that, friends. Do not be discouraged. Don't be discouraged about your son who does not yet care about your Savior. Don't be discouraged about uh, your spouse who you've prayed for and yet you don't see the kind of things going on in his or her life that you've hoped for. Keep praying. And don't look at Gary and Holborn Portage and Southwest Lake County and say, well, what's the point? There's just people going to hell there. This is a work in progress. And oftentimes, success comes to the turtle, not the hare. And Wilberforce was a turtle who, in the end, won the race. Let's be turtles. Let's be Wilberforces. You know, I have to add this because I think it's important to his story. It'd be easy to look at Wilberforce and say, oh, life was great for him. Actually, it wasn't. He had horrible physical ailments. If you've got physical struggles, you can relate to Wilberforce. He, was, he went, basically went blind he, at a fairly young age. He had curvature of the spine. The last many years of his life, his head just hung like this. The only way he could lift it up would be to hold it up honestly, but it just would come down like that. He had all kinds of physical problems. He had two sons that broke his heart with the choices that they made. 
He had a daughter named Barbara that died when she was 32. He had a wife who struggled with depression and was very melancholy, even while he was joyous and upbeat. He was a man that knew struggle and trouble and trial, and yet he persevered. And the last thing I want to say is this, is that behind all of this in Wilberforce, if we really to understand the man, we have to realize what was behind it. And behind it was a love for God that produced then a love and care for people. We just can't get past that, can we? The two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's just the way that it works. When I have the love of God through Jesus in my heart, it produces through me agape love for others. And we see that in Wilberforce, so pronounced, a, a compassion for humanity, blacks, whites, all races, He was instrumental in opening up India to missions. His personal legislation opened the door for William Carey, who was waiting outside the country. It opened the door and allowed him to go in. The famous William Carey. If Wilberforce was not Wilberforce, William Carey would not have been William Carey. What a man. Amazing how God used him. Listen to Metaxas again. Taken all together... It's difficult to escape the verdict that William Wilberforce was simply the greatest social reformer in the history of the world. The world that he was born into in 1759 and the world he departed in 1833 were as different as lead and gold. Wilberforce presided over a social earthquake that rearranged the continents and whose magnitude we are only now beginning to fully appreciate. William Wilberforce. Now what are we going to do with this guy? We're going to do Hebrews 13. We are going to consider his faith and imitate the outcome of his life. Wouldn't it be great if this church was like Wilberforce? The people of our church like Wilberforce? Think of the legacy. Think of the legacy that we could have. And my dear friend, you can be a part of it. God can use you. The gifts that he's given you, the riches that he's given you, the opportunities that he has given you, the experiences that you have, you are absolutely unique in the whole history of the world. You have things to bring and things that you can do that nobody else can do. And God can use every single one of us in wonderful and profound ways. Now, we may not end up at at Westminster Abbey, Uh, But how great to hear from the Lord Jesus, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is the goal. So may our church reflect Wilberforce-type love. And may we experience the amazing grace of God to us. So thank you, William Wilberforce. May his life inspire us.